Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel 14, verses 12 through 23. It says, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it, and break its supply of bread, and send famine upon it, and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. Now if I cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they ravage it, and it be made desolate, so that no one may pass through because of the beasts, even if these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither their sons nor their daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword upon that land, and say, let a sword pass through the land, and I cut off from it man and beast, Though these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into that land, and that's like disease or a plague, into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness." For thus says the Lord God, How much more, when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. But behold, some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. Behold, when they come out to you, and you see their ways and their deeds, you'll be consoled for the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, for all that I have brought upon it. They will console you when you see their ways and their deeds. You shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord God. Now, this is a very interesting section of Scripture here because God's speaking to Ezekiel, to be, of course, to pass on to the people of, of uh, Israel who are in captivity there in Babylon and also those that are still left in Jerusalem. And he says, look, if I were to send famine on a land to get its attention, and I were to cut off from it man and beast by sending a, a famine where there's no food, and even the animals can't make it. Even if Daniel, Noah, and Job were in that land, if I've decided judgment is coming, only Daniel, Job, and Noah would be spared. They wouldn't spare others. Now, I'm going somewhere with this because for years we have loved to quote 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and pray and turn from their sin, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. And for years, Christians have been throwing that verse out to say that if we just pray, the land will be spared. And we've got to keep in mind, you've got to build your theology, not from a passage of Scripture, but from the whole of Scripture. And in that passage of that Scripture in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, he was talking to the people of Israel who were his people. And if the people of Israel who were his people, if they would turn from their ways and pray, he would heal the land of Israel. Does the scripture say that if Christians just get together his people and pray, then he'll save America? Does the scripture teach that? Not what we just read here. He said those Christians who are in the land are going to be okay when he brings the judgment. Well, let's let Scripture speak for itself, not just taking Ezekiel. Go with me to the book of Jeremiah. Look at chapter 15 of Jeremiah, verses 1 through 4. Now, I'm not saying that we as Christians shouldn't pray. 
Because we've already seen in our study earlier that when Jeremiah in chapter 29 wrote the letter to the exiles who were there in Babylon, he said, pray for the welfare of the country which you're in, because it'll be good for you if you do that. But in Jeremiah chapter 15, look at verses 1 through 4. It says, Then the Lord said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. And when they ask you, where shall we go? You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, those who are for pestilence to pestilence, and those who are for the sword to the sword, and those who are for famine to famine, and those who are for captivity to captivity. And I will point, appoint over them four kinds of destroyers, declares the Lord, the sword to kill, the dogs to tear, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the earth to devour and to destroy. And I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. Here, God says through Jeremiah almost the similar thing at around the same time period. And here he says, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me and said, God, don't do this, I'm still going to do it. We've got to be real careful of building a theology that says, if we believe it enough, God has to do it. I was at a National Day of Prayer thing about a few years ago at a big church where all these churches had come together. And there were many different denominational leaders that were taking turns in the pulpit. And I was grieved in my spirit as I sat there and people came up and started making declarations. We declare this a Christian nation. We declare this. We declare that. And they were wanting everybody. They had the declarations up on the big screen and they wanted everybody in the sanctuary to read it along with them. And we're making statements that we are going to be a Christian nation. And as I sat there, the Spirit of God took me to Ezekiel chapter 14. He says, even if Job and Daniel and Noah are in it, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, if I have determined that a judgment is coming, the judgment's going to come. So, what does that mean? That means we still should pray for our country. We should still pray for our leadership. But we got to let God be God and not us be God. Because when we start taking scripture and say, if we do this, then God must. Guess who's God? We've made ourselves to be God. And he works for us. That's why we're to humble ourselves. And to seek his face. And let him do as he wishes. Do we ask for his blessing? Yes. When David sinned with Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet came after about the child had been around for about a year and said, you're the one who did this horrible sin. David, even though he had been told the child will die, he fell on his face and he begged God. He wouldn't eat. He wouldn't bathe. He just fell before God and said, please, God, please spare this child. What was God's answer? No. David, when he finds out the child is dead, gets up and he says, hey, draw me a bath, fix me something to eat. And everybody was all freaking out. They thought he was going to really lose it because he was losing it while the child was still alive. And David said, look, I didn't know how God was going to respond. Perhaps he would hear my prayer, but he's chosen not to. He, that child won't come to me, but I'll go to him. How does that relate to like Moses when he came down from the mountain <clears throat> second time and then I mean... Mm -hmm. for doing all this bad stuff. And he sought God on behalf of the people. And he let the people, he said, but those that come over, will, I'll say, and those that want to stand there, but he did let some. 
Exactly. And again, that's because God gets to have mercy on whom he'll have mercy and compassion on whom he'll have compassion. Where There are times, the reason why in Jeremiah, he talks about Moses and Samuel, these are people that actually stood before God and prayed on behalf of the nation of Israel. And in some instances, God said, when, when God said, remember how God told Moses when he came down from the mountain after the 40 days and the Israelites were worshiping the golden calf? He told Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to kill them all. And Moses said, that won't look good for you, God. And he prayed on behalf of the people of Israel. And God said, you know me well. And he spared them, but it was because God chose to spare them, not because Moses prayed. And then, you see, understand, you could build the theology from that story that Moses prayed and God listened. And everybody in the sanctuary would say, amen, let's just pray and God will change his mind. No, that's not what the Holy Scripture teaches. Because here it very clearly says in Jeremiah that even if Moses and Samuel, in that instance there, where God had determined the judgment was coming, even if Moses and Samuel stood there before me today, it won't change anything. The judgment's coming on Israel. Oh, and on top of that, he then says to Ezekiel, even if Daniel, Job, and Noah were there. Now, I'm going somewhere with this, though. Look again at verse 21. For thus says the Lord God... How much more, when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. But behold, some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. And behold, when they come out to you, you will see their ways and their, their deeds, and you will be consoled for the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, for all that I have brought upon it. They will console you when you see their ways and their deeds, and you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord God. By the way, if, we, if you've been paying attention in our study through Ezekiel, hasn't God already been saying all along there's going to be famine in Jerusalem during the siege, and there's going to be wild beasts, and there's going to be sword, and there's going to be disease? But some, remember the pieces of hair that he would tuck in the garment? Remember that part? There were some that were going to be scattered to the wind, and some were going to be protected. He said, and when you see the survivors that come out at the end of the final siege in 586 B.C. that actually come into Babylon, and you see their lifestyle, and you see their ways, you'll know that everything I've done, I've done for a reason. Now, I don't know how many of you know this yet. I'm hoping that from your Revelation study, something might have triggered. But do you know that the Bible actually says that what God did to Jerusalem, He's going to do to the whole world? Go with me to Revelation. Go to chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. If you remember, this is during the beginning part of the tribulation period where Jesus is opening the seals. Revelation chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. And when he opened the fourth seal, by the way, who's opening the fourth seal? Jesus. All right, so he's already determined he's going to do this. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with, look at this, sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts of the earth. What he did in Jerusalem, the scripture says he's going to do it again. Well, not if his people get together and pray. Do you understand the silliness of what we do sometimes? 
Please don't hear me. Those that are listening online, hopefully that you haven't met me and don't know me, but hopefully you understand. I want us to pray for our country. It'll be good for us. It'll be good for our nation. But if God has determined that a judgment is coming on the whole earth, a judgment is coming on the whole earth. Paul even said in Acts chapter 17 that God has already set the day in which he's going to judge the whole world. And he's going to do it through the man he appointed. And he's given proof of who it is by raising him from the dead. And here we see in the book of Revelation, during the first half of the tribulation period, of course, carrying over into the second half. At this point, though, the first half, there's going to be a quarter of the earth is going to be killed. A quarter of the people on the whole earth is going to be killed with the same four things he used on Jerusalem. By the way, those of you that are Bible scholars, did he do what he did, said he was going to do to Jerusalem? It happened. In the same way, it's going to happen on the whole earth. All right? That's all we're going to do in the rest of chapter 14 for now. Go back to Ezekiel. We'll look at, spend the time we have less tonight to deal with chapter 15. By the way, as you see at the end of chapter 14, though, uh, he says, you're going to realize that I have done everything I've done for a reason and not in vain. Write this down in your notes. Go look at it later on. Go read Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. In Nehemiah chapter 9, when the people come out of captivity back into the land of Israel, that's around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra was a part of rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah was a part of rebuilding the walls of the city. In chapter 9 of Nehemiah, you read that whole chapter and you will see they stand there in front of the temple that's being rebuilt and they read the word of the law and they say, God, everything you did was right. You were right in doing it. Just what the prophecy said that they would say. Chapter 15 of Ezekiel, though, let's read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 8. It says, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? The vine branch that is among the trees of the forest. Is wood taken from it to make anything? Do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of it, and the middle of it is charred, it is, use, is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it, and it is charred, can it ever be used for anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate, because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God. I'm going to say something to you as we get into this part of our study tonight. God is talking about you here. You say, wait a minute. He's talking about Israel. He is. But as you're going to see, by the time we have left, as we really dive into this, you'll be amazed how much is right here in these eight verses of this whole small chapter of Ezekiel. You're going to see that what he's saying to Jerusalem and what he's saying to Israel has a correlation and a connection to you and I today. So let's start with this. God asked Ezekiel this question. He said, what good is the wood of the vine compared to all the rest of the trees? He says, can you make anything of it? What's the obvious answer? No. He then goes on and says, you can't even make a peg from the wood of the vine to hang something on. The wood of the vine is useless. The only thing you can do with the wood of the vine is to do what, according to the scriptures? Burn it. Use it for fire. Well, then I'm going to ask you a question then, guys. Then what was the purpose of the vine? 
If the only thing that it was good for was to burn, what was the purpose of the vine? I heard it. You got it. See, this is what's really behind this question. And if you hadn't really thought about the big picture, you might have missed it. You see, God made the vines to produce fruit. That's what they were created for. If the vine is not producing fruit, what good is the wood of the vine? So if God determines that Israel is not producing the fruit that he desired Israel to produce, is he wrong in burning them? No, that's all that's left that its value is, is to be destroyed. And so what I want to do is I want to take you back through Scripture and lay out for you that the Bible has shown all along that God described Israel as the vine and the vineyard. Again, what's the purpose of the vines and the vineyard? To produce fruit. Now, we're not going to turn there, but in Genesis uh, chapter 49, he descri God describes uh, Joseph as a fruitful bough. But we're going to start in Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2, look at verse 21. God speaking to the nation of Israel through Jeremiah in verse 21 of chapter 2 says, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? So God says, I planted you a choice vine of pure seed, but you've turned into a wild vine. Go to Psalm chapter 80. Look at verses 8 and 9. Chapter 80 of Psalm, verse 8. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. What's the vine that he brought out of Egypt? Chapter 80? 80. 80. I'm sorry if I wasn't clear. Psalm 80. I'll read it to you again. Verses 8 and 9. I want you to see this. Chapter 80 of Psalms, verse eight, verses 8 and 9. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. Who's the vine that he brought out of Egypt? Israel. Who, he says, I cleared the land. I removed all the inhabitants of the land, and I placed you, the vine, right there. They were a pure seed, but they became a wild vine. But because Israel turned away from God who planted them, God had to clear the land in order to remove the fruitless vine. Go to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 7. It says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do, was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, that's its protection, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, 
it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. I think it's gotten clear now. There's no question mark as to who the vineyard is. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now, I really want to read this to you again, because in a little bit tonight, you're going to hear Jesus say something that for years you thought probably was him just telling a story. Isaiah chapter 5 is going to come alive to you when we get to the New Testament tonight. I'm just going to read the beginning part of it. Let me sing a song for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill, and he dug it and cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now, again, we're not going to keep reading. Keep that part in mind. All right? Go to Jeremiah chapter 12. As you saw there in Isaiah 5, he says, I did all this for it, and it produced wild grapes. What else was there to me to do? except clear the land, start over. Jeremiah chapter 12, look at verses 7 through 13. God says, I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned, abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me, therefore I hate her. Is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair? Are the birds of prey against her all around? Go, assemble all the wild beasts, bring them to devour. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it a desolation. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate, but no man lays it to heart. Upon all the bare heights in the desert, destroyers have come. For the sword of the Lord devours from one end of the land to the other. No flesh has peace. They have sown wheat and reaped thorns. They have tired themselves out, but profit nothing. They shall be ashamed of their harvests because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Here we see part of the reason for why the vineyard didn't produce fruit was who? The shepherds. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, if you remember from Jeremiah uh, chapter 10, verse 21, he says the shepherds are stupid, senseless, brutish, depending on your translation. They have not inquired of the Lord, and therefore all their flock is scattered. So here we see that God, because of Israel's disobedience, and they're not producing fruit that he desired for them to produce, I'm going to ask you the question again that God asked Ezekiel in chapter 15, what's the value of the vine if there's no fruit? What do you got to do with it if there's no fruit? You have to destroy it. That's all that its valued is. You can't make anything out of that wood. You can't even make a peg to hang something on from that wood. It's to be burned. Was God wrong in bringing the judgment? Is God wrong in bringing the judgment that he's going to bring on the church first and then the world? No. Jesus continues this narrative. Now, remember, at this point, the nation of Israel had been taken into captivity in waves. And by 586, the land would be desolate. And 
most of them would have been killed. Go to Luke chapter 20, though, because by the time Jesus comes on the scene, Israel has been taken out of captivity. They were brought back into the land, but because of their disobedience, they never fully had control of the land anymore. They were still under, they were vassals, if you will, under control of kingdoms that were over them. And even at the time that Jesus shows up on the earth, even though the Jews are allowed to have their temple and their services and their worship, were the Jews fully in control? No, they were still under the, the, the control of the Romans. And in chapter 20, verses 9 through 18, it says, and he began, Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a, vi- planted a vineyard, and he let it out to tenants, and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So as Jesus told this parable about this vineyard and the the owner of the vineyard coming to get some of the fruit, and as he sent his servants to go get some of the fruit, they beat that servant, kept doing that. Finally, he said, I'll send my son to this servant, to the the vineyard to get some fruit. And when they see the son, they decide they're going to kill him. And he says, what's the owner going to do when they kill his son? He's going to give the vineyard to others. Now, stick with me here, because in my study for tonight, God showed me something that in all my years of teaching from this passage, I had never seen before. See, I have used this passage and one that I'm going to show you in Matthew to teach that because of Israel's disobedience, He removed them from the land and gave the land to somebody else for a time. You've heard me talk about that. But look closely at the wording. He's going to give the vineyard to somebody else. Go to Matthew. It'll become more clear when you see Jesus' teaching on this in Matthew's account. Go to Matthew 21. As you're turning to Matthew 21, verses 33 through 43, let me ask you a question. Is the vineyard the land, or is the vineyard the people? Okay, you're, you're, well, for Israel, wrong. For Israel, it's the people. Remember what we've read already. I took a vine out of Egypt. He didn't bring land out of Egypt. I took a vine out of Egypt and I planted that vine and that vineyard in the land. I cleared the land for it, but the vineyard isn't the land. The vineyard is the people of Israel. And for years I read that story of Jesus taking them out and giving the land to somebody else. That's not what he's saying. He says, I'm going to give the vineyard to somebody else. That's interesting. But Matthew's account clears it up for us. Look at verses 33 through 43. Jesus says, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it 
and he dug a wine press in it. Is that starting to sound familiar? And he built a tower and he leased it to tenants and then went into another country. Folks, where's Jesus quoting from? I already showed it to you. Isaiah chapter 5. Remember I read it to you twice? He built a tower, put a wine press in it. Folks, I, 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 can't, I can't stress this enough. When Jesus even told stories, he wasn't just making up stories. He was quoting from the Old Testament even in his stories. That's why the Jews understood full well what he was saying when he says, I'm going to give the vineyard to somebody else. They knew they were the vineyard all throughout the scriptures. The Pharisees knew the Old Testament. They knew the promises and that they were the, one, the vineyard. And there's some cool promises about the vineyard to come. We'll get to those in a bit. So Jesus says, there's a master of a house who planted a vineyard. And it's a people. It's not a land. Put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. And he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, This is their answer. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Keep reading. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you Jews and given to a people producing its fruits. That's us. Remember I told you at the beginning? He's talking to us. Now, please, don't misunderstand. Don't run too far ahead. The church has not replaced Israel. We aren't the vineyard now, and God's done with them. We're going to get to that a little bit later tonight. But I don't want you to miss this. Why did Israel get in trouble with God? They didn't produce the fruit that he desired for them to produce. He said to them, I'm going to take you. I'm going to make a people of you and I'm going to plant you in a land and I want you to walk with me. I want you to obey my commands and I want you to be led of me. All along throughout the Old Testament, you'll see what does God require of us? They said and Micah, the prophet says he wants you to act justly, love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's all he's wanting you to do. Adam and Eve used to walk with God in the garden. All along, the, the Jews were told, just listen to me, walk with me, do what I ask you to do, and I will bless you. I'm going to bring you into a land you didn't even clear out. I'm going to clear it out for you, little by little, but I'm going to do it for you. You're going to come into houses you didn't build and crops you didn't plant. And, but don't think for yourself for a second that you did it, because then I have to remove my blessing. Let you get what you can do. And the Jews, unfortunately, wanted to be just like everybody else around them. What doesn't that sound like the church today? The world's way of doing things has crept into the church. 
but I get ahead of myself. Go to John chapter 15. We've seen that he's going to take the vineyard and give the vineyard to somebody else. Now all of a sudden, John chapter 15 makes a lot more sense. Again, too many of us, unfortunately, have just been taught the New Testament. And we read the New Testament like it's something by itself. But the New Testament comes alive when you know the Old Testament. All of a sudden, the vine and the branches teaching of Jesus looks totally different now, doesn't it? Look at what it says. Jesus says, I am the true vine. In other words, the Jews were the vine in the vineyard, and they were given a responsibility to walk in obedience to the Father and to do what he said, and he would bless them. Jesus said, I'm the only one that can really do it. I'm the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser, the gardener. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it bear, may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You're just the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, if anyone does not abide in the vine, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire. Isn't that sounding pretty interesting now? Sounds like Ezekiel chapter 15, doesn't it? Thrown into the fire and burned. And if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, before I read any further, I'm going to ask you a really tough question. And I'm going to tell you now, it's a hard one. Who is the vineyard now? I told you it was a tough one. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. The only way we can even produce any fruit is if we are connected to Jesus. He's the vine. We're just the branches. Who's the vineyard? It's Jesus and him alone. Too many of us have been trying to work for Jesus now that he saved us. We've been trying to do things for Jesus. We've been out there trying to grunt out fruit. You can't. The vine, the vine, the vineyard is Jesus. Oh, we are attached to him. And he lives within us. And because of that, it does manifest itself in the church. But what does he say? We're the body of Christ. You see, you're not the vineyard now. Jesus is still the vine. You're just attached to Jesus. You're part of it. But anything you have that's of any value only comes from your relationship with Jesus Christ. You try to live the Christian life apart from walking with Christ, you're a branch that will produce no fruit, and you'll be gathered and thrown away. Did you hear what Jesus said? Many on that day will say, didn't we preach in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we? I want to challenge you. Is fruit being produced all the way through this? He says he's made this relationship. He's the, vine, the vineyard's going to be given to others who will produce the fruit. And really, it's Jesus. 
It's been handed to him. He now, by his grace, has said, I'll let you be a part of the blessing, but you've got to put your faith in me and abide in me. And if you do, you will produce fruit. And this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit and, what's the rest of that verse? I just read it to you. I heard it. And prove yourself to be my disciples. In other words, when we produce fruit, the, it's evidence that we're connected to Christ. Not that we did good works. It is evidence that we're connected with Christ. Look at verse 8 again. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be, may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master's doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. And you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and, there it is again, bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in my name, he may give it to you. Oh, these things I command you so that you will love one another. So I'm going to ask another tough question. What does this fruit look like then? What is the evidence that we're connected to Christ? What is the fruit that God's looking for? Good for you. Good for you. Because for too long, Christians have been saying the fruit is other people getting saved. That's God's job. The Bible, if you remember back when God said to the nation of Israel, I looked for fruit, I looked for righteousness, and I found bloodshed. I looked for justice, and I saw you treating each other badly. All throughout this thing, he's simply saying, as the Father has loved me, so do I love you. Now I want you just to love each other. And as you already just quoted in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and following, the fruit, see that word again, of the evidence of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness. All that stuff is evidence that we are walking with Jesus. Self-control. Folks, let me just tell you. Again, it is not our job to determine who's really saved and who's not. But the Bible's very, very clear that actually many who say they are of Christ aren't. We should not be surprised when we see our churches acting the way they do, when our church, quote-unquote, members act the way they do. They're just giving evidence to whether or not Christ is in them. But when you act, well, I'm going to change the word because it's not you acting when you allow Christ to live his life through you, as you abide in him, people can take your spot in the parking lot and you won't be bothered. They can sit in your pew and you won't be bothered. Oh, I'm going to step on some toes here. They can even sing songs you don't like. And you won't be bothered. Why? Because you are in Christ. And you, when we yield ourselves to Jesus, we daily lay our flesh on the altar. And Paul says, look, when I'm sitting in prison, I don't know if I'm going to live or die. Either way is good. 
because I'm with Christ. If I die, I go get to see him sooner. If I live, it's more reward. Either way, Jesus. This past weekend, I, like I told you, I had got a chance to go spend some time with a wonderful couple that I've been dealing with for many years now, eight to nine years, pastor who used to be in Florida, now living in North Carolina where his daughter and son-in-law are because he's dying of cancer. The doctors have said he's had weeks. And I'm telling you, it was one of the most awesome visits. I've been knowing these people for eight, nine years, and I sent a text to the wife, Vicki, saying, this was the most fun I've ever had hanging out with you guys. We spent four or five hours together. I snuck him out of the, uh, hot, uh, the rehab place that he was in, and we went to a restaurant and sat and talked and then brought him back. And his attitude was, I'm only 64, but I'm fine. This is what I've been looking forward to. Being with you. He's got a grandbaby that's going to be born March 6th, hopefully. And we're praying that he lives long enough to see his grandson. But even if he doesn't, he will. Folks, I ran into so many people in churches that found out when I was preaching up in the church up in Virginia near there. And they said, well, we're really sorry about the reason. We're glad you're here, Jim, but we're really sorry about why you're here. And I had to say to Christians, why? Why are you sorry that this man gets to go be with Jesus? which Paul says is better by far. I, I run into Christians around the country, and I'll say, how are you doing? And they'll say, at least I'm on this side of the dirt. You ever heard people say that? I don't want to be on this side of the dirt. I want to be on the other side. Actually, I'm hoping I never get to even experience the dirt. I'm hoping he just takes me up there. But guys, I'm not living for this world. But that only happens when you abide in Christ. That means daily you must let the Spirit of God. I preached to the men today at Men in Motion about the fact that on Valentine's Day, this day of Valentine's Day, there's a tendency for us husbands to try to do a wonderful day to show we love them. But our wives, as much as they appreciate the teddy bears and the roses and the chocolates and all that kind of stuff, or Wendy's like I took my wife out to dinner at, <laughs> as much as they appreciate that great stuff, they would rather we live it out the rest of the year, correct? Oh, listen to what the Scripture says. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinners, he died for us. Oh, but don't miss, you skip verse 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 5 says, God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he's given us. Did you catch that? He demonstrated his love on that day. But ever since, he's been pouring out his love on a daily basis through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. Jesus says, oh, you guys, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Just prior to chapter 15, when he says, I'm the vine and you're the branches, he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. Father's going to send the helper. and He'll be with you forever. And folks, I want to challenge you today to not, am I producing fruit? Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you're going to produce fruit. How? Don't worry. When? Not your job. By the way, there was something I read earlier in what Jesus said in Matthew, how the master sent his servant to collect the fruit at the right time. Listen closely. He gets to determine when he's expecting certain fruit to be produced in each of everybody's life. I'm going to say that to you again. He has, the, he has determined when he's expecting the fruit in each of our lives to be produced. 
And that's not our call to determine, well, I, I would have thought Gary would have produced more fruit by now. No, the Lord says, I'm working on Gary. Um, I'm the vine. Gary's the branch. My father's the gardener. Some, he's working on picking them up if they're not producing fruit. The, the, the translation here says takes away. I think, honestly, I taught on this earlier, and I don't have time to get into it too much tonight so we can finish all that I want to show you. But actually, uh, the Greek word there in verse 2 uh, is the Greek word arrow, which means to be lifted up. It's translated takes away, but if you look, I don't have time to take you there, but in Matthew, where it talks about how Simon was asked to carry Jesus' cross, that's that Greek word arrow, it's a picture of picking up. Also, we see in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22, I think it is, or verse 20, actually, uh, at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls left over. That Greek word arrow is what they translate picked up. And so you could translate this there. Every branch in me that's not producing fruit, he picks up, not takes away. It could be that, but I, I don't believe the first thing Jesus said to them is, if you're not producing fruit, I'm taking you away. You know, I think if you know anything about growing grapes, if a branch grows down along the ground, it's not going to produce any fruit. In order for it to produce fruit, you've got to pick it up, tie it to the trestle or something up in the air so that it gets light and air. And actually, you would clean it. I think Jesus said, any branch in me that's not producing fruit, he picks it up so that it will produce fruit. Any branch in me that is producing fruit, he prunes it so it'll produce more fruit. And then he says this, you're already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Both of those words, arrow and the pruning, are tied to cleansing. His desire is that you produce fruit. But listen, you can't do it. But if you'll daily say, Jesus, my life is yours today. Do through me what you want. And most of the time, listen, he's going to say, I want to do in you more than through you. Because if he's allowed to do in you, and then you just happen to run into other people in this world like we do, He'll do through you all by itself. God's more interested in not you doing things for him or him even doing anything through you as much as he wants to do in you. In you. Love, joy, peace, patience. I remember when I first started preaching, I tried to preach through Galatians. And I preached on how to be more patient. And the whole time he's saying, oh, I'm the one being patient as I let you preach on how to be patient. <laughs> how to be more loving. You can't. You can't take a course on it. It's something that happens as you allow Jesus to take root in your heart. And he'll do it. He'll do it. Oh, are we the final vineyard? No. Israel's going to be given another chance to be that vineyard. Go to Romans chapter 11. I'm going to jump into verse 13. He's been dealing, Paul's been dealing with this question, is God done with Israel? No. Is God done with Israel? No. Look at verse 13. Paul says, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Boy, I love the fact that he's the 
root and I'm the branch. If the root is holy, so is the branch. I love that. Thank you, Jesus. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off, so I might be grafted in. That's true. But they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Now, by the way, he's not saying you could lose your salvation. He's saying the real evidence over time of whether or not you're really in Christ will be what? Fruit. That's going to be the real evidence over time. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and following says that the Antichrist is coming. But even now, many Antichrists have come. And then he says, they went out from us, but they never were of us. If they were of us, they would have stayed. But their going out showed that they were never of us. Jesus said, there's going to be seed that falls on the rocky soil. It springs up and fools everybody. But when t trouble comes, they're going to go away. With seed that falls on the thorny soil. And it springs up and sure everybody thinks they're a good church member. But the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth. The only thing over time that's going to be real evidence of salvation is the evidence of Jesus in us. Not how hard we've worked or how much we've done for him, but just simply that person has love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. And the longer I walk with Jesus, the less I try to do I'm going to say that to you. The longer I work with, walk with Jesus, the less I try to do. And the more I rest in the fact that he will do his work. Because he who began this good work is the one who's going to finish it. Hebrews says he's the author and the finisher of my faith. And you know what's neat? The less I try to do, the more it gets done. And I'm not even trying to do it. Oh, but keep reading. Look at verse 23. And even if they do not continue in their unbelief, meaning the Jews, they'll be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in all this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, as regards the gospel, the Jews right now are enemies for your sake. But as regards election... They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You want further evidence you can't lose your salvation? Is salvation a gift? The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Jesus said, I will lose none that the Father has given me. Then what about all these warnings about those who may be cut off because of their unbelief? There you go. What about all these ones that say, well, if you, only if you continue? 
because there's going to be many folks who pretend. But it's not our job to figure out who is and who isn't. It's our job to just walk with him and let him do his work in our lives. I was telling some people at dinner tonight as we were sitting, some of the folks from the Bible study were there at the Wendy's because I'm not the only one that knows how to treat a lady. And uh, I'm not naming names, Chris and others. But uh, um, Chris was talking about how he had the privilege of going with a group of people up to Samaritan's Purse and to do disaster relief. And how much, he said, I came back with just joy. I said, you know why? You experienced what real church is. Church is not a church service, folks. As I travel around and speak to churches, I tell them the churches that focus the least on Sunday morning at 11 are the most healthy. The ones who focus most of their energy and their effort on Sunday morning at 11 are the least healthy. But real Christianity, real being the called out ones, is to find out the gifting that God has given you and just go let God do it through you and you'll have a blast. And Chris is wired for disaster relief. He creates most of the disaster, but he's gifted to clean it up. As we close tonight, go to Psalm, sorry, not Psalm, Isaiah 27. This is a future prophecy that's going to be fulfilled. Isaiah 27. Oh, there's so much here. Look at Isaiah 27. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. In that day. Remember? Remember we've seen those phrases. That means the end. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, that fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Folks, this is the Bible talking about itself all the way through. If you remember from the book of Job, when Job says, I wish I had a face-to-face -face with God, God shows up in chapter 38 and says, I understand you want to have a talk with me. i got no problem asking any question you want. Right before you do, though, I'm going to ask you a couple quickies. And then God goes on for four chapters saying, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where's the snow stored? How do the, who determines how far the oceans go? All this stuff, he just goes off. And in chapter 40, he says, oh, by the way, big stuff, um, can you even touch Leviathan? There's an animal that you can't even touch. You try to go at it with a sword and a spear, it just bounces off him. And you try to put a, a harness on it and treat it as your pet, you'll never do that again. And as, whenever I go and look for a new Bible and get a study Bible, I always go to Job chapter 40 to see what they say in their commentaries about Leviathan. And it kills me. Every single one says, this is a crocodile. <laughs> no, it isn't. Read chapter 40. And you will see that Leviathan was a beast that was so big, it left a huge wake in the ocean. It was a fire-breathing dragon. There's actually a place in the book of Psalms where God says he will kill the heads of Leviathan. That's interesting. In other words, there's a dragon. There was a dragon on the earth at one time that had more than one head. Oh, I think we see in Revelation that Satan is described as a dragon, and he's got seven heads. Ten horns. And who's the beast that comes out of the sea? Who's empowered by the dragon? The Antichrist. Do you see it? The book of Revelation isn't a book that was added on at the end to make us feel better. It's compiling the Old Testament. In that day, 
The Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day, there it is, a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with what? Isn't that cool? Folks, Israel were the people he chose to bring for himself out of Egypt. He planted them in that land to produce fruit. They were disobedient. They didn't produce the fruit he desired. He kept giving them opportunities. He'd clean them out of the land, try again. Clean them out of the land, try again. Ultimately, because of the rejection of the Messiah and the killing of his son, he gave that vineyard responsibility to who? To us, the church, through Christ. But there's going to come a time when he gives it back to them. You see, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And then in that day, all of Israel that's left at the end of the tribulation period is going to be saved. And he's going to replant them in the land. And his wrath will be gone. And he will protect it. And will sing about it. And they will produce fruit over the whole earth. Kind of fun, isn't it? So what is our job now? Get to work and go produce fruit? Abide. Rest in Him. I pictured the abiding relationship a lot like a man I know in New Orleans called Carl St. Pierre. Carl St. Pierre was one of the most hardworking guys you ever met when it came to his daily job. He worked in New Orleans repairing locomotives, the big locomotives. I mean, you didn't want to shake hands with Carl. He hurt you. He didn't try to. He just couldn't help it. He worked his whole life with his hands fixing locomotives. But Carl wanted to spend time with me. He just, he and I built a neat relationship and he wanted to go fishing, but he didn't get off work until like three, four in the morning. And I'll be honest with you folks, I'm not a late night, early morning kind of guy. And I'm not a, a avid fisherman, but Carl said, I want to take you fishing with me in my boat. And I said, okay. And Carl would take me to places in New Orleans where you had to carry a gun on the boat out in the water. So I'm sitting there four in the morning and we're fishing and Carl had worked all day and he would rig up his line and set his pole in the water. You know, he set his line in the water, put his pole down and he would lay down across the middle of the boat in the middle seat all the way across. Head touching one side, feet touching the other. And I'm sitting there because I'm competitive. I'm trying to out catch Carl and I think I got him because he's sleeping right now. And and Carl would get a bite and I'd say, Carl, you got a bite. And he'd say, don't worry. It'll get off. <laughs> It'll get off. Because it wasn't about who was going to catch the most fish. It was about spending time together. And by the end of the night, just for the fun of it, he would rig up on his line three hooks, catch three fish and say, I won. Let's go home. <laughs> but he just rested. He just rested. I want to challenge you. Stop worrying about everybody else. 
God's wanting to produce fruit, and he's determined when the fruit's supposed to be produced in everybody's life, and he's got a time when he wants to see it in yours. Just go drink of his love that's being poured out in your heart. And one day, you'll be rewarded for all the stuff you didn't do. And it'll be easy to take that crown and put it at his feet. I love you guys. We'll see you next, well, not next week, two weeks from now, because I won't be traveling.